Hi, this is Nico Rosberg. I just wanted to say congratulations to Lewis Hamilton on his sixth World Drivers Championship. Well done, Lewis. Oh, yeah, that was my teeth. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. He's Richard. Hello. She's Sarah. Hello. He's Zog. Hello. And you know who I am, and you know who the current world champion of Formula One is. Small, delicate round of applause, please, for Lewis Hamilton. Six times world champion. And who thinks it's going to be his last? Nobody. Anybody? Does anybody think he's not going to win another one? Well, the way Honda are going at the moment, it's certainly not going to be as easy for him next year as it has been. Not that it was easy. And the way that the younger generation of drivers are coming up. Before Verstappen's got his world championship in... Already you've got Alban looking tremendously promising as another... Uh, Damon Alban. Damon Alban, that's from Blur, that. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think Leonardo Norris is promising as well. I was going to say, who can say, you know, Norris or Russell? Yeah. Won't, uh, that's won't an interesting that. point. And Leclerc too, of course. I mean, Leclerc also... I love yeah. Leclerc, yeah. One of my faves. Why do you love Leclerc? Is it because he's cute and lovely and gorgeous? Because he is, even I... Who is that too? No, yeah, um, even I swoon when he's on. I think he's delicious. Yeah. Finn, hush! I think he's had enough disappointments in his life to make him quite endearing. It's easy to support somebody that's... He's lovable. Yeah, he's, he's, he's lovable. Mm. Plus, he's really, really good at Formula 2. He's very successful at that. And he stormed um, it, yeah. Shaking a few feathers there at Ferrari. Today, I should say, we're recording this programme immediately after the Brazilian Grand Prix. And a few minutes ago, we were all gasping as the two Ferraris came together, as Lewis tipped Damon Alban from Blur into a spin. Great entertainment. It shouldn't have been that entertaining, that race, because this is kind of academic racing. It's non-championship racing. But if this is the way it's going to be in the future... Hey, I'm there with the sport again. Was it academic? Because I haven't been paying attention. Were there any teams that were in a position where a few extra points could leapfrob them over someone else in the championship for Ooh, I, I, I think no, the I, battle I, between it, McLaren and Renault is ongoing, isn't Renault it? And was also the battle for third, Verstappen and Charles Leclerc. Charles, Charles Leclerc. Leclerc. You know what, Martin Brundle called him Charlie during the commentary. Yeah, Charlie Clark. <laughs> Charles, Charlie, Charlie Clark. Charles. Charlie Clark, Le I call Cla- it. Leclerc, yeah. Leclerc. To come back to your point, Zog, is it going to be Lewis's last championship? What do you reckon, Richard? No. No, God no. I mean, yeah, of course not. Of course I not. don't know. He might not. find, well, I was going to say find God, but he's already found God, isn't he? He might find more God and go off and become <laughs> a, 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 a reverend a somewhere. A pantheon of them. And quit F1 over the winter, but I doubt it. And that being the case, I'm sure he's a shoo-in for another championship. But you've raised an interesting point, Zog. There's some whippersnappers and And more of them. They want his lunch. And the thing I realise you said as well is that Verstappen has never won a world championship and it sort of tips to be he was the whippersnapper. Yeah, for the last couple of years he's been tipped 
to take the crown. Yeah. Well, the, even a driver like Hulkenberg, when he started coming in, they all thought he was the next best thing. We've got Daniel Ricciardo. All these guys are predicted Formula One world champions. Well, I mean, but will they always just be the potential of the Formula One world champion? We all... actually, in fact, never become a Formula One world champion. Well, most of them won't, will they? No, yeah. Well, actually, yeah. Unless um... they have a car on parity, which is what they're working towards. So maybe, yeah. maybe we'll see some changes. But they are all the top of the game. The guys who get into Formula 1 are picked because either they've won the lesser formulae or should have won in the lesser formulae, formulas, uh, formulatis, formulans. And when they get to this very, very high standard, all better off. It's like a level playing field apart from the cars, which makes the difference. But the new rules will hopefully shuffle up the pack a little bit. So if Lewis doesn't win next year, it's going to be harder for him to win in the following year. I don't years. know. I think rules tend to shuffle up manufacturers. New rules tend to shuffle up the packing order of manufacturers because there's randomness in how each team deals with the new design challenges and whether they get their choices of compromises to make just right or whether they come up with a really special idea. New rules do much less to, I think, jumble up the driver order. Sometimes you do get a thing where there was the period when Vettel was doing very well out of the blown diffuser cars because he could exploit the characteristics of those cars with his driving style Mm. in a way that a lot of other drivers couldn't. He was able to get in there and figure out how to make the most of that car when other drivers couldn't. But most of the time, I think that the best drivers stay the best and the mm. not-quite-so-fast drivers stay not-quite-so-fast. They just all get pegged back or forward a little bit, depending on what the new rules give them in terms mm. of racing machinery. So what you're saying is the likelihood of Williams suddenly delivering a championship-winning car in two years' time is very unlikely, very low. No, I'm saying the reverse. Uh-huh. I'm saying that uh-huh. a change in the rules tends to mix things up a bit and it makes it more likely that Williams is going to be able to come up with a solution that bumps them up the grid. Actually, I'm not sure whether they've kind of really got the budget at the moment to be Williams. able to yeah, yeah, to be able to put the resources into dealing with the quite significant changes that are coming up because the way that the aero is working on the cars now compared to how the aero is going to work with the 2021 rules is considerable. It's a sea change rather than a collection of tweaks. Mm. And I think that means there's going to be much more opportunity for the design teams coming into this to do the kind of clever stuff that aerodynamicists and car designers do that we only have the vaguest grasp on and really don't understand at all. (laughs) But they do some kind of basically magic. Witchcraft, yeah. Witchcraft, Mm. and we're amazed by it. It's a question of who comes up with the best witchcraft. Lewis Hamilton definitely won't stop until he at least equals Michael Schumacher. I think that's a given. I don't think I would have said that two years ago. But now that it's within sight of Schumacher's lofty achievements, I think Lewis is driven to do better than him now. I think you're right. But I get the feeling that he's trying to do these things not so much to beat a record that Senna had set or to beat a record that Schumacher had set, but because he just really wants to do this to the maximum of his ability. He just really wants to just carry on doing... I, yes. I, I just I get this sense that he's... You know, I mean... I, I get the I sense think. that Richard disagrees. No, I agree with you and disagree with you. Because this is good. He, he obviously just wants to keep doing it while he's at the height of his powers, which I think he is. But he's also a kid who grew up watching Senna and then Schumacher, and he's topped Senna's achievements, easy peasy, he made it look like me, and now the next target is, well, you know, why not try and best these boyhood heroes who he holds in great regard, but also 
it boosts his self-regard in the nicest possible way if he can actually yeah, prove yeah. himself to be better yeah, than the people yeah. he idolises as a child. I mean, that's an incredible yeah. thing for any human being to be able to do, to go, here's someone I really respect and they're the best in their field, but now I'm better. And then a few years later, he sort of remarkably finds himself in a position where he can seriously think about actually beating the records of those... Yeah, you know, of idols. I but it must think be extraordinary. He's because he is definitely someone who kind of appreciates culture and references from the US. And in US sports, they seem to be obsessed with people being the goat, the greatest of all time. That's it. Yeah. And that would be him if he beat Schumacher's tally mm, of world championships. Yeah, so you know, in the back of his head, there's a little bit of goating going on that'll propel him onward. I think he has the time. He's young yeah. enough. And he has the talent to be able to do it. He's showing no signs of getting any slower as a driver and he's only getting more experienced. Well, you've got Tom Brady, isn't he, about 42 or something? And he's the still the world's Patriots best quarterback. And yeah. um, Roger Federer, he's 38, playing the ATP mm. finals this weekend. Mm. And the commentators just kept going on about, oh, he's still in his old age. He's... <laughs> he wouldn't have been doing that X amount of years ago. But in terms of not being as good as what perhaps Federer was in his peak... But that's, you know, I tell you what, Formula One is coming to Lewis in a different sort of way with the announcement that they're going to attempt to be carbon neutral by when? Because Lewis is becoming a sort of a strong advocate for green technologies or green living now, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. 2030. So, Hang on, isn't it? Which you've got to run fair stick for, I think. Carbon yeah. neutral by 2025 and carbon positive by 2030. Is that what they said? Is it? I think. 2025. I, I, I think there was some particular aspect of F1, which I think it may have been team transport to the circuits. Yeah, yeah and it's also I think like... It's no, supposed no. to be carbon neutral by 2025 and then the whole deal carbon neutral by 2030 uh, something okay. like right. is it's that, about is that having right? their events to be sustainable like no plastic bottles and just to be greener a lot of the production companies that sort of fly these live events around the world they're wanting to reduce transport costs and things like that and the way that they move from city to city so it's becoming greener in that sense but then also the actual cars as well so well I know that the I mean, Channel 4 F1 coverage now flies a lot fewer people around the world but that's because Channel 4 gave them a lot less money so well, <laughs> well, that's interesting. Which you is say a very that, good way of reducing. Half their production yeah. is remote, so you know they've got yeah. half their production but, team. But seriously, you know, if you want to cut carbon emissions by fifty percent, cut budgets by fifty percent. Money to no, be lavish. Yeah. One of the reasons why certain national economies have had lower carbon emissions at certain points in the last 20 years has been because those economies were in recession. It wasn't because the governments did good work structurally to reduce emissions from the energy sector or the transport sector. The economy slowed down. They emitted less carbon as a direct result. At the risk of sounding like Greta Thunberg, growth is the enemy of the planet, really. Uh, Well, you know, it um, it is, and this is way beyond the scope of this podcast, but we do kind of have to re-engineer our economies Mm. in all kinds of ways in order for that economy to be able to support anything like the kind of population trends we have at the moment in anything like a medium-term Population's the big problem. I've always said this. Well, a problem. These things are very complicated. There isn't one problem. There are a lot of interrelated problems. big contributor to it, though. I've been given some thoughts about how Formula One could become carbon positive in future. First of all, do away with flying the gear around the world and get a fleet of solar yachts and duplicate Mm. everything three or four times. So, you know, it'll take five weeks to get there, but at least you'll have... The time to get there with your well, slow solar yacht. But the duplication is wasteful. Yeah, yes, yeah you have a lot of you have a lot of uh, embedded. Yes, oh, but the duplication is that you've got to use last year's car for half the races. No, I think you just wherever you go, you just have to go and buy a car. 
<laughs> that's your competitor. Mm. That would be an interesting. Uh, yeah. Thing, uh, well, yes, and uh, the way to to turn up our races and uh, at every race you have to turn up with yeah. a vehicle that you have bought uh, at local auction for less than ten million pounds. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, yeah. You're, and and you're and you're allowed to spend. No more than 15 million per (laughs) chassis per race preparing it for the event. It's like some kind of deranged... Maybe that's what Top Gear Middle East is like. (laughs) (laughs) Don't joke about that. That could be... We were each given a budget of 15 million pounds. Just sort of having look at this Formula One, new rules and regulations or the goals... Yeah, you were, Sarah's looking at her phone. I was going, what oh, are you yeah, doing? Why are you what, looking what, what at my phone? I'm a little quote from our good friend Chase Carey. Yeah. He's saying, in launching F1's first ever sustainability strategy, we recognise the critical role that all organisations must play in tackling this global issue. So by leveraging the immense talent, passion and drive for the innovation held by all members of the F1 community, we hope to make a significant positive impact on the environment and communities in which we operate. The yeah. actions we are putting in place from today will reduce our carbon footprint and ensure we are net zero carbon by 2030. One interesting aspect of this is that, to me, my personal view of this and the personal view of F1 announcing it's going to do this, is mm. I'm thoroughly in favour. I think it's good, well done, do it. This is a great idea. The problems that F1 is going to have in becoming carbon neutral illustrate the problems really for the world as a whole and our culture as a whole, which is that the biggest contributor here is transport, the transport that teams are using to get to and from races, and also the transport of fans, you know, the fans mm. travelling to events, there's a, there's a lot of carbon emission in this. Now, it does not matter what the cars burn during the race, that's, that's, that's a tiny, yeah, tiny, yeah, tiny, yeah. tiny, yeah. tiny fraction on the end yeah. of all this, so let's just forget anything to do with the cars that are racing, mm. that doesn't matter. The problem here is that if you want to fly carbon neutrally around the world or to ship a whole F1 team carbon neutrally in a couple of days from Europe to South America, that is a hell of a challenge. Carbon Mm. neutral air travel is a very long way off. I mean, you can do carbon offsetting, but there are all sorts of issues around that. It Mm. may or may not be as complete a solution as you might think it is. Mm. You cannot take an international cargo flight that runs on biofuel Mm. Yeah, you could sail Mm -hmm. or something like this. Mm -hmm. It's going to take you too long for it to be practical Mm -hmm. in this context, so that is not going to happen. That's why I was talking about Um, duplicating the equipment. And even if you've got to use more road transport or more rail, again, you're up against infrastructure that we have. The transport infrastructure that we have and the energy-generating infrastructure that we have just rely much too much on burning fossil fuels, and we have to get away from this, and we are not doing it fast enough. I've got it. In the meantime... What we do is we get Formula One to run their races on tracks, for instance, in Sao Paulo, with all the local diesel trucks in front of them. And Formula One cars have to have massive carbon capture funnels at the front. They have to collect all the carbon from the diesel. They've got to avoid the vehicles, collect the carbon, and then transport it somewhere and bury it back in the seabed. That'd fix it, wouldn't it? Y- yeah. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, Worth a shot. Toto Wolf, you weren't in Brazil for the final race of the season. Does this mean we won't see you at F1 races in 2020? No, no, no. I'll be at races next year, of course. Ah, so are you saying that in any sense you will, as it were, return? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. You, you will return? This is what I'm saying. Can you actually say it? I can confirm that I will assume my usual position of attending races next season. You will return. I just said yes. Say it again. Say you will return. But say it not quite like that. 
I confirmed this already. My return to races is guaranteed. So, you will return? Why do you keep asking me this? Just do it. <sighs> I'll be back. Toto Wolf, thank you. Now, I have here some clothes, some boots and a motorcycle. Would you like them? If you've listened to Gareth Jones on Speed for several years, you'll know that we followed the Bloodhound project for several years, from when it was called Bloodhound SSC, and now under new ownership, Bloodhound LSR. Now, you will have spotted in the news this week that they achieved 628 miles per hour, which is incredible. And I was very pleased to get a chance to actually talk to the man who drove that car just over a week ago, before they'd done those incredible speeds. They were cruising at just over 500 miles per hour. And I spoke to Andy Green via the gift of Skype. Wing Commander Andy Green, how wonderful to talk to you again after, I think, six years since we spoke last, when Bloodhound was largely theoretical. Now you've proved that that car works and works very well. How much are you enjoying this trip? It's a real thrill for all of us to be out here in the desert. We've been working hard at this. The car's been coming together over the last year. The desert, of course, out here has been coming together for the last 10 years. The Northern Cape government's put a huge amount of effort into it. Uh, the local people, so 300 strong tips for the last 10 years. They took a rubble-strewn desert with a causeway and a road running across the middle, and they've turned it to the best straight-line racetrack pretty much anywhere ever. And it's an achievement which is genuinely of biblical proportions. So they are absolutely thrilled to have the car here, and it's all going swimmingly well, so we're all really pleased with it. I read on your blog that you had genuine doubts about the feasibility of the racetrack. Were you in the right desert was the question. Is it proved to be okay with that causeway crossing the track? Whenever you're doing a scientific experiment, you have to question the experimental assumptions that you make. And at least exactly the same thing for developing the engineering and the science like this. We need to keep questioning every single fit. So we were all exactly right to keep questioning. Is it the right desert? Have we got to the right place? The encouraging thing in getting here is just what an extraordinary thing the locals have done, what an extraordinary surface they've left and how well Bloodhound is coping with it. It really is the track we always wanted it to be. I'm very glad to hear that. Tell me now about driving the car on that surface. I know that the peak speed that you've achieved so far is 501 miles per hour. Is it stable at those sorts of velocities, the car? Yeah, the car is actually too stable at the moment. We have a larger yaw static margin than we would like for high-speed testing. But that's because, of course, it's been sized for next year once we have the rocket pack and everything else fitted. And that will move the center of gravity back, reduce the yaw static margin, reduce the crosswind sensitivity. So at the moment, stability is too large. It's on the upper bound for where we'd like it. We'd like to push it down just a little bit just to give us a bit more flexibility. So does that mean that the car isn't responding to steering inputs as much as you would like? How does that manifest? No, it means it's responding to gusty crosswinds more than we would like. And how hard are you having to work to keep it on the straight and narrow, so to speak? It requires occasionally some fairly rapid steering inputs and the occasional gust outside of the crosswind limit is pushing the car several metres off the track. But of course, that's why the Northern Cape government repaired 
a kilometer or over a kilometer wide strip out here to mean that if we do even if the car does get pushed off the track by several meters that isn't even worth mentioning in safety terms it's purely a control and stability data point that we need to work around you're taking a beautifully logical approach to something which i'm certain most of us who like to drive quick vehicles would consider a frankly terrifying experience are you nervous or are you hyper concentrating when you're driving the car well it's kind of my job to concentrate when i'm driving the car so that tends to be (laughs) what has been the most unsettling moment for you so far I'm not sure we've actually had any particularly unsettling moments. The whole point about high-speed testing and a step-by-step developmental process to increase the operating envelope of the car is that you don't have a massive scary moment where suddenly something comes up that you weren't expecting because we've increased the speed step-by-step. We've done everything in an incremental and progressive way. Tell me about the programme ahead of you now. How long have you got out there and what are the targets? The target is to, to develop the car up to as fast as it's comfortable to go in the distance available. And that will take possibly another week or two, depending on the weather, depending on how the car behaves. And how is the weather panning out at the moment? I, I saw that you had some pretty massive sandstorms and you have an upper limit on crosswinds is that right yeah of course any vehicle like this will have a crosswind limit we need to put this in context we're operating from 10 mile an hour crosswind because at the moment the car is slightly more sensitive to crosswinds than we'd like but places like Bonneville Speed Week and most land speed records will pull stumps by 10 miles an hour across at the latest. So Bloodhound is already right at the top of what most high-speed cars could do, and that's even being cautious during the high-speed testing. So the crossing limit is the massive problem for us. You mentioned the dust storm. Of course, we put that up on the internet to let people see what a dust storm is like out in the desert, but we've had one of those in the month that we've been here. That took out half of one day. One of the reasons we've come to South Africa, the weather over is being very kind to us. You're in a very select club of people who have driven cars at, frankly, astronomical velocities. I'm interested to ask you how driving this car compares to Thrust SSC. They're very different vehicles. I know that they're configured in a very different way and you have far greater software and predictive abilities with this car. Is Bloodhound a lot more stable and less highly strong car than Thrust SSC was? You're asking me to simplify a very complex question. They're both stable vehicles. It's more challenging to control precisely because of the characteristics of rear wheel steering. Bloodhound is more sensitive to crosswinds because it's been aerodynamically configured for next year, not this year. So they are very different. I was told many years ago that when you fly an F4 Phantom, beyond supersonic velocities, the way that your ailerons and rudder operate are directly opposite to how they operate at subsonic velocities, where you institute a yaw with your rudder and it rolls in the opposite direction. Is that the sort of thing that you'll have to cope with at supersonic speeds with Bloodhound? Gareth, I'm afraid here I have to quote Luke Skywalker about your Phantom story to say that that's quite remarkable because everything you've just said is wrong. Oh, how wonderful to hear that. I've asked this question many times of people. You're about the only person I know who has the experience to answer it correctly. Really, so that doesn't happen at supersonic speeds. Is that right? 
the whole control reversal thing is a Hollywood myth. So it actually doesn't happen. I'm particularly glad to hear that, quite frankly. How do you feel going forward now? Will the car be able to reach the ultimate target that was set a very, very long time ago of a thousand miles per hour? Is that something that you're still setting as an upper limit or are you just taking it stage by stage? The fundamental design principles of the car are still the same. It is still has all of the design facets for a thousand mile an hour capability. That said, Ian Warhurst's new owner has broken it down into two very distinct phases, and I think very rightly we'll focus on getting a new world land speed record and targeting 800 miles an hour for our next visit to the desert, and then look at all the data and work out how much more difficult it will be to get from there to 1,000 miles an hour and reassess phase two of the programme at that point, which I think is a very sensible way of doing it. I would imagine that the complexities at running at 800 miles per hour are geometrically larger than running at 500 miles per hour. As I understand it, air resistance squares with velocity. Are you getting into an ever more complex zone? Are you learning about what could happen by operating at these speeds right now at just over 500? Yeah, of course we are. That's the purpose for being here. And is it matching your predictions, any simulations or analysis that you've done beforehand? How close is it to what you predicted? So far, it's very close. We've only just started scratching. You know, we've only got to about Mach 0.65 so far, or a little under that, about 0.63. So as the Mach number comes up, we'll then start to get a lot more aero data on the predictions. The car is taking quite a pebble dashing. I would imagine that hitting small particles at 500 miles per hour is knocking the poor old girl around a little bit. I know that you had some damage to the rear deltas. How is that looking? You're obviously focusing on a few square centimetres, which made for an interesting picture. That's the only area where we're seeing that sort of effect. And that has already been repaired and tested. And obviously there is also a longer term repair when we get back to the UK, which will actually minimise the problem by reshaping the airflow around that bit. Well, Andy, I shall be certain to come and join you over in Gloucester when you get back. I wish you the very, very best with the continuing runs out there. And like all the listeners to Gareth Jones on Speed who have our names on the fin of that gorgeous vehicle that you're driving, we wish you the very best out there. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Gareth. Yeah, quite a thing and drilled that Bloodhound have now completed their project for the moment. We'll bring the car back home, having done 628 miles per hour, and work out how they're going to run it with a rocket strapped to it over the next 18 months. Fantastic. You're a fan like me. Yeah, I mean, a car that has a jet engine and a rocket on it, that's that's quite something. And showing off. I, I, I love some of the challenges in the design and engineering of these things are fantastic. You have to have solid wheels because you cannot make a tyre that won't explode if you stick it on a car and run it over a bit of land at 700 miles an hour. They're titanium wheels, aren't they, I think? And, and, and there's all this stuff about the aerodynamics of the car as it's approaching the speed of sound. In a way, it's harder doing this with a car than it is for a plane because when you push a plane through the speed of sound, 
you're not having to deal with a shockwave building up and then bouncing off yep. the ground a few inches beneath you and then being reflected back. Yeah, it's tricky stuff. Good yeah. luck to them. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of Andy Green's blogs or the short video clips of Bloodhound going past, but it makes an amazing sound. Find it, put your headphones on, turn it up. It is gorgeous congratulations to them it's been quite a week or a fortnight really for big car stuff because not only has bloodhound been rocking the headlines but a movie broke which is about our favorite subject not just motorsport but specifically le mans the movie's got two names in britain it's called le mans 66 but in the States, it's called Ferrari versus Ford, because apparently they don't... Ford sorry, Ferrari. Ford versus Ferrari, because apparently they don't know about Le Mans, which I doubt that very much. You haven't seen the film, Richard, have you? No, I couldn't go. I was, I've been invited to go and see it, and yeah. I couldn't go, annoyingly. So. But we luckily accepted your invitation. Thank you very much indeed. Zog, you saw it separate to Sarah I and did, I. I did, yeah, because I hadn't updated my WhatsApp, yada, yada, yada. I, by the time I realised this preview was going on, I couldn't make it. But you know, I, caught, I saw it the other night. Now, and I don't know what you thought of the film yet. You both went to see it. Yeah. And I don't know what you thought of it. And you don't know what I thought of the no. film. No. Are you going to tell so us this what you think about it? I am. I go, well, okay, I loved it. I thought it did a terrific job of turning a great motor racing story that we happen to know a bit about. Yeah turning that story into a great bit of popular entertainment. Like Rush, it takes a true story, takes some liberties with it, but for me, the liberties that it took and anything that it sort of glossed over or scrunched two things into one or just, you know, changed details of, that was also, for me, was okay because it managed to tell a really good story of British grit and Texas swagger versus stuffy suits in the middle of this semi-personal, semi-economic battle between two giants of the car industry. I did and see somebody in the US reviewer saying that really it should have been called Shelby versus Ford. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, yeah, because it has... A, that's the story it's really Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, and part of it, yeah, and yeah, the last story is the, you know, yeah, Shelby yeah, the, and um, Miles, Miles as, you know, the yeah. kind of one-man band, the independents, the mavericks mm. against the bean counters. But it so happens that the bean counters have been persuaded that they need to go out on a limb and take a bit of a risk at the greatest motor race in the world. And they realise that they need a couple of mavericks to help them do it. Mm. The cast was terrific. There are times when... It's maybe a little bit corny, a little bit broad strokes, yeah. but the cast is good enough, particularly Matt Damon, to sell it, to pull it off. And for me, some of those little kind of cliches and things, they managed to get away with all that because, like I say, they just sell it and they get on with the story and you're loving the story, you're involved in it. It's a long film, but it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't feel as long as it is, which tells you something about how well it's telling that story. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff in, I guess, the development of the GT40 and stuff in terms of how the race was actually run that purists are going to be able to find fault with. But I think they should take more pleasure in the fact that somebody's managed to make another really first-rate bit of popular entertainment Mm. out of a great true motor racing story. That's why we love Le Mans, why we love motorsport. It's full of great stories like that. Zog, the only way you're going to find out... Yes, I do largely agree. I would have given a bit more... I'm going to hear what you thought in a minute. You'll find out. I would give a bit more kudos to Lola, who did the initial development work on the car that became the GT40. That isn't mentioned in the film, but that's just your geek thing. It's not crucial to the human story. From a car point of view, yes. I'm sorry there. But from a movie fan point of view, I don't care. I, I care much more about the fact that somebody has made a film that the average moviegoer can go and really yeah. enjoy, you know, yeah. and they don't care whether Lola developed the original chassis or not. 
They, they do. Yeah. You know. but, okay, you want to hear what we think about it, Sarah yeah, and I? Yeah? Let's hear it. Well, the answer is we recorded our reaction immediately we came out of the showy. Did you enjoy? Do you know the story of Le Mans 66, Sarah? Well, I do now. You do now, (laughs) yeah. I wasn't very familiar with it, but I tell you what, actually probably my favourite part of that whole film was the way they depicted Enzo Ferrari. Yeah! good. (laughs) Enzo was way cool and a little bit terrifying and a little bit evil. Oh, so much character. It was amazing. I rather like the guy who played Henry Ford the second who had real sort of screen presence which you'd expect from the head of the biggest car company in the world and he kind of got what he wanted and his whole body language was very good I like to imagine that the real Henry Ford II was rather like that I don't know if he was it was a Hollywood movie yeah well probably I didn't really like the Ford marketing guy he was a bit of a Lee Iacocca very famous yeah I bet he's famous yeah yeah, Yeah, yeah. he pretty much screwed up Ken Miles' last yeah Well, the trouble is now, if, if, if you're listening to this, it's going to be full of spoilers, let's be honest. Because, you know, we could give away how the movie ends, but if you're a motorsport fan, you'll know the, you'll story, know the story of what exactly. actually happened in the last lap of... You know what we could say, though? That we went to see it in Cinema X and a 270-degree movie theatre where we got to see three sides so both sides of the cinema we could see full pictures so in some scenes they had more cameras on the scene so it was this amazing sort of big wide you know the front of the cinema and the two sides are lit up with pictures and you just got this huge view of it that you would never have done before yeah it's like watching a movie either in a cube or in a tunnel where you've got stuff not just in front of you but on the sides as well but not the ceiling they say the sky's the limit but they didn't bother with the ceiling did they yeah I mean they say surround sound like this was surround pictures Surround yeah. vision, it was, yeah, that's so, fair I play, mean, it, yeah. It wasn't 3D, 3D you wear glasses because and then you get that different sort of effect, but this one, yeah, I thought that was an extraordinary. Immersive, more immersive because it fills your yeah. peripheral vision. And I think it suits a movie like this where you've got lots of point of view stuff when you're in the car, in car action. When you're on the track, it does make you feel like you're on the circuit going down the Mulsanne straight. Talking of which, I thought the depiction of Le Mans, the circuit, the Lassar, in 1966 in the movie was Spot on. It was amazing. I thought it was amazing. I don't know how they do that. No, the way they shot it was very good. You did, as watching it in the cinema audience, like being behind the wheel and being up close, I thought they shot it very, very well with my experience in film and shooting. But yeah, I thought it was amazing. Yeah. There were a few shots early on of the GT40 being tested and I thought it's not going that quick it doesn't look like it's going quick and that's often a problem with cars in movies but later on during the racing sequences at Daytona on the journey to Le Mans if you like and at Le Mans it really did appear like those four GTs were going hell for flipping leather it was genuinely exciting (laughs) oh yeah it was really exciting I was on the edge of my seat for some of it yeah it was great if you're a racer if you enjoy motor racing you will enjoy this film I had a couple of, uh, I don't know, criticisms is the right word, a couple of observations about things in the film that bugged me. At one point, one of the Ferraris crashed at turn six, they said, and everyone in the pit lane turns left to look towards the Ford Chicane. Now, turn six is right. It's up at Tête Rouge. You can't see it by turning left. And the smoke appearing behind the grandstand, no, you wouldn't have seen that. And there were a couple of other things as well, but the thing that slightly annoyed me, I don't know if it annoyed me, but distracted me, that Ken Miles' family are watching the 1966 Le Mans 24 hours 
on TV in the United States of America. Two things. It's daylight when they're watching it, and it's daylight in France. Uh, hang on. And when it's dark in France, it's dark in America. Uh, I don't think that was right. And second of all, did they really broadcast live motorsport 24 hours coverage via satellite to America in 1966 I don't know if they did but I'm willing to doubt it yeah I kind of felt like they did add to the story flesh out the story a little bit add a little bit of character with his family like Ken Miles who knows whether that's actually his real life but the producers did a really good job yeah. building the characters and providing that story well I'm, I'm glad good. Molly Ken Miles' wife was in that film Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a single woman well, in add, that film. Yeah, it added colour, added texture, yeah. She was the only female in that film. Not just the only female who had a line in that film, the only female in that film, as well, far as Well, there was Enzo Ferrari's translator. Oh, yeah, she had a line, didn't she? In both Italian and English. I actually quite like the way they did that, that yeah. they used, uh, Ferrari used Ford, so they could bid off with Fiat over buying yeah. Ferrari. So I thought that was quite clever. I like that. I liked when the Ferrari stopwatches got stolen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're giving you all the spoilers now. Carol Shelby in the pit lane at Le Mans was a bit of a rapscallion. He stole stopwatches from Ferrari at one mm. point and dropped a nut into their what, pit. I, just, I loved how competitive the whole team was, the engineers, everyone in that team, and then also the internal tussle within the team of Ford. I mean, that, that yeah, marketing yeah. was an absolute... I'm sorry, but it was a bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> If, if I had to deal with someone like that in my company, I mean, I'd be tearing my hair out. But to think that he was pretty much sabotaging his own team just because he had a personal problem with Ken Miles. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting, but I tell you what, I'm surprised Shelby didn't just say, you know, screw it, just let him just carry on and win it. Which he is came across shame. as a very dignified, honourable, loyal, know-where-you-are, straight-talking, Southern American, well-dressed guy, didn't he, Carol Shelby, in this film, depicted by... Um, What's Matt he? Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> I know the names of the real well, people. He had but a not bit of an actors. edge to him, though. I don't yeah. think he was prepared to take too much. Yeah. You know, I think he pushed back as much as he got. I mean, I don't know how much of that stuff is true about him nicking the stopwatches and dropping the nut on the floor. I don't oh, know. An- for another sure. element that added, you know, good story. Yeah, yeah. It was. So it was made it exciting. It was funny in a lot of places. I think Christian Bale, born in Wales, who played Ken Miles, was almost a comedic character really wasn't he He had a lot of funny lines and funny moments i think so he had attitude didn't he but you know what i think the movie was slightly too long slightly i mean they didn't really need to flesh it out for the whole two and a half hours i I agree it was a long movie i mean i like a long movie but i think they did dwell too long on setting up the early days before they got to right let's take the gt42 le mans they had to tell the story of ford wanting to buy Ferrari, they had to set that up because that was the whole background, that was the whole reason for Ford taking on Ferrari at Le Mans. But the race itself was what, the last 30 minutes perhaps of the film and yeah, I think they could have got 20 minutes out of it at least, couldn't they? But I don't mind a long film, I'm quite yeah. happy. I went for a wee break in the middle after he won Daytona. Spoilers. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I didn't mind it. I mean, I watched the Elton John film, that was way too long for me. Hey, five minutes of an Elton John film would be too long for me. Far too middle of the road for my liking. I like my entertainment not to be middle of the road, but on the middle of a racetrack. Yeah, Yeah. so would you recommend that to non-motorsport fans, that film? Absolutely. I mean, it has excitement and that element of competition. 
I think so, but I mean, I remember the movie Rush. That was a really good film. And yeah. if you're not a racing fan so much, yeah. the movie Rush was great. But I, the highlight for me was the depiction of Enzo Ferrari. I love that and the competition between Ferrari and Ford. I thought it was very, very good. And at the end, spoiler alert, I think Ferrari had a lot more respect for people like Ken Miles, so to speak, without giving it all. Without giving it away. The, yeah, there's one moment that you're referring yeah, yeah, to, yeah. yeah, which maybe you'll know about as a race fan. You'll know whether or not that moment that Sarah's alluding to here actually happened or not. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home now and spend the next two hours reading up about Le Mans 66 and all the things that it was suggested happened in the movie and to find out if it was a documentary we just watched or a piece of Hollywood. I don't know the full mm, details of the story. a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. They're bound to stretch things probably, a little bit. Every year probably has a very good story just similar. You're absolutely right, yeah. The story of Audi's wins at Le Mans would make... Mm. epic Hollywood movies and if you tell that story you'd have more women in it because Lena Gade who is the race team manager woman you see Mm. right at the heart of the action so yeah we need to even that up a bit the most distracting thing in the movie I found though was Christian Bale not his hilarious West Midlands accent spoken like this the whole Mm. time it was quite sweet but he looked exactly like a young Damon Hill to me. He didn't look like Ken Miles. He looks just like Damon Hill. Look it up so, now. No. Yeah, you no, look at pictures of young Damon Hill, that top lip with that slight underbite, and I'm doing Ken Miles' voice. And you look at Christian Bale in this movie, spitting image. All right. Marks well, out of 10, I'm, Sarah, as we go, go, we're going to go and get the tube. Marks out of oh, 10. Oh, I'd say a good 8.59, yeah. 8.59? Very specific. I mean, you always leave room for improvement. <laughs> no, it can't be perfect. No, if it was a documentary, it'd be perfect. Yeah, we'd recommend it if you're a race fan. Go and see it. In a world with no competition. And Audi have confirmed their withdrawal from WEC Racing. What if your biggest rival? This now means Toyota are uncontested in the LMP1 category. Was yourself. This fall, buckle up for a not especially interesting ride with Le Mans 2019. Toyota versus... Toyota. The car's got a problem, but fortunately we have one other and they're miles ahead. The New York Times called it the most boring movie of the year. And just a few hours in, the Toyotas are already lapping everyone else. Voted Time Out's most pointless and tedious movie of the decade. No one can beat us now except ourselves. Which is nice. Le Mans 2019. Toyota vs. Toyota. Do not watch whilst operating heavy machinery. Big stuff has happened, or is happening at the moment with... Bloodhound going quicker than ever with great movies about great races and big stuff is happening in the road car industry at the moment with the announcement that FCA, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, are 
Are they merging or buying into PSA, which is the parent group of Peugeot, Citroen, and Vauxhall, Opel, and DS, and well, I've probably missed out another one, haven't I? The Peugeot have got a ride-sharing thing as well, haven't they? In America, that's part of the deal as well. But, Richard, this is massive, isn't it? Yeah, I think PSA have the upper hand because they're a profitable company. But, yeah, I think it's a merger. But it's a merger that gets FCA out of a load of basically, because their strength is, in terms of things that you'd want from them, Jeep, maybe. And then PSA won't get some of their other companies into the US. But with what? Well, you say with what? I mean, Jeep is the most useful thing from, you know, so. from the point of view of the States. The States is increasingly less interested, surely, in small, medium-sized European cars. Yeah, just why the Fiesta's being deleted there and the Focus. You know, it's like even Ford, who... There's a Focus uh, gone from America. Focus is going. <sighs> Americans and the Mondeo, whatever they call that, Fusion. That's Fusion, going. yeah. But that's Ford, who Americans think are American. Well, because they are American, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Their attempts to sell Euro-developed small cars haven't really panned out the way they'd hope because everybody wants SUVs. Yeah. And that's fine. They'll do them SUVs. But then it's like, well, OK, so you want to get Peugeot back into America... Let's not forget they used to be there. Yeah. Let's not forget Lieutenant Colombo. I was going to say Colombo. The greatest homicide detective in history. Yeah. Drives a Persian. Did he? I don't yeah, remember yeah, that. Peugeot yeah, yeah. 403 Cabriolet. Oh. I wish you'd said one more thing at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Brought that up right at the end oh, of this segment. I can't segment. believe I missed that. Oh. Uh, um, Sarah uh, Richard, drives a Persian. You. You've got I a Persian. You. Yeah. I shouldn't have. 206 EC. Yeah. Yeah, see, we've got a PSA car owned driver right here. But <laughs> Peugeot, um, mate, you know, they well, historically, you know, been they're reliable cracking, cars. Yeah, and, and, you know, quite... They do well in Africa. Fun, good suspension, you know. They yeah, do, historically, they do well, well in Africa. They, they, so the uh, Middle uh, East as well, they sell a lot uh, of cars uh, still. No, not yeah. sure that's true. Yeah, the um, Paycan is basically still a <laughs> well, <the laughs> in Iran. Maybe I can just make also, up a couple It's got a new name, hasn't it? No, you stop now. Have they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original Paycan, which is a Humber. Yeah. Roots group. Car. Yeah, yeah. No, what do they do well? Europe, I guess. Mm. And Canada? China, they're okay. No, they don't suppose The only thing about having a Peugeot in Australia is that it's very difficult, very expensive to maintain. You have to order parts from Europe. Really? Yeah, I think oh. Peugeot are quite particular. So that's the only sort of drawback with having a Peugeot. Well, that may be about to change. We'll see. <laughs> so, but from Fiat's point of view, that's the big thing because they've just allowed basically what used to be their bread and butter in Europe and in some other countries, South America, parts of South America, small cars. They've allowed it to wither. Certainly in Europe, the Punto used to be one of the best-selling cars in Europe and mm-hmm. they just yeah. went, allowed it to wither on the vine and now it's dead. 500 sort of running out the clock a little bit until they decide what they're doing there. I think it's going to move towards electrification more with the next generation. But they can now get in on a state-of-the-art small car box of parts mm. that when PSA bought Vauxhall Opel, the new Corsa was almost ready to go, apparently, but it was built on somebody else's kit of parts. I think it might have even had some residual Punto DNA in it, because the old Corsa mm-hmm, did. Yeah. And so Peugeot went, uh-uh, you're going to have to... It's silly. Economies of scale is why we got into this caper. Because you think, what they're doing is they're just increasingly merging into one enormous brown ball of plasticine, all of these sort of underperforming mid-level brands of yeah, car. Increasingly, yeah, increasingly there are no brands left except brands that are part of enormous global automotive but they all exist at the same level is my point it's like they haven't got a super cheapy sort of thing going on like Dacia they haven't got anything that you would call sort of upmarket like BMW or an Audi or something like that all they really have despite their attempts with Deus which haven't really worked all they've got is M&S underpants 
perfectly yeah, yeah. serviceable in a lot of ways, but they're just but mid-level, they're, 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 affordable. That's an interesting there. analogy to make because M&S Underpants, you know, famously kept the company going for a very long time. Well, and, that's uh, true, but they're probably... And supported Britain through tough... T- oh, well, literally just, supported Britain. Literally supported Britain. Uh, maybe that's a bad example then because the trouble is that they can only ever shift cars that are heavily discounted. But PSA, in recent times have bucked that trend a little bit and started making a profit. They bought Vauxhall Opel and then pretty much sort of they started showing a little bit of a profit as well. So old Tavares, who runs the show, is a pretty canny cost cutter and, and he's big on economies of scale. Now they can bring Fiat into the fold as well. And so it's like instead of ordering, I don't know, half a million wiper motors a year for their small car platform, they'll be buying a million and then they're getting even more discount on them and yeah. yada, yada, yada. It all makes sense. But at the same time, they are essentially all cannibalising each other because they are all mid-level mm. cars that are all about the same size because of course they are because they're going to be built in the same bit so it's almost like you know do you buy a Corsa or a Punto or a 208 who's doing the biggest deal the Mm. best headline I read about this recently was Tavares forms a super group Hmm. which I thought was a 70s reference that only a gentleman of a certain age would get, but lovely. But the question is, are they going to start killing some of these brands, Richard, or are they going to badge engineer cars and sell them rather like the VAG group does? They're essentially selling the same car as a a Seat, a Skoda, a VW, an Audi, and a Cupra. Are we going to get the same car sold as a, a Fiat, an Alfa Romeo, Maybe even a Lancia, a Peugeot, an Opel, a Vauxhall. Where does it end? Or well, are we going to see yeah. the death of Vauxhall? Are we going to see the death of Peugeot? What will happen? What well, do you think? in Europe, that's really difficult to pull off because you've then got to basically sack a load of dealers. You've got to close down R&D places. You've got to close down factories. Mm. That's mm. a tough one to pull off. They yeah, might do if they're desperate, but I think that the idea it's got to be quite is a more big just deal, yeah. build everyone up. But how do you do that when you are just all fighting over the same turf. It's not like VW, where Audi sits at the top of their mainstream, mm-hmm. and then VW is sort of a cut above... Well, say that's the weird one, because they've never made it stick, but they are mm. bigger sort of in the Iberian Peninsula and, yep. and, and bigger in Italy than, I think, Skoda. I'm not entirely sure that's true. And mm. Skoda is your sort of top-value, sensible, but no-frills thing below that, and it all sort of fits together. Mm. For people who don't know that they're sharing lots of parts under the skin, mm. they'll just go, well, an Audi A3 is a very posh car and a Skoda is, mm, that's not such a posh car. You know, they're not fretting over the fact they're actually very similar underneath. Yeah, and they will pay more for the Audi. But no one goes, oh, well, a Fiat. Now, that's way more prestigious than an Opel. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, well, I dream of affording a Peugeot as opposed to a Fiat. So if they oh, follow well, the VEAG mm, yeah, right. model, they're going to have to reprofile some of those brands. They're going to force Peugeot at market. Market or Citroen up market, they're going to force Vauxhall Opel down market, make that the bargain group. That would be the way to achieve what VW are doing, isn't it? it if they yeah, can. It would, but you're sort of coming from a position of contrivance. I mean, you could do, oh. yeah, just go, oh, look at this, Vauxhall's have suddenly got cheaper. They can't be too cheap, I suppose, because it undermines then, they need their money back. Well, the other thing you can do maybe is if you're talking about sort of, you know, trying to distinguish between these brands, rather than sort of doing it on a kind of price prestige basis you kind of find a slightly more kind of lifestyle oriented way of distinguishing your brand so you know Vauxhall is your rugged off-road brand let's say you decided to make that you know I I know but for the sake of argument you know and and Fiat is your family brand you know you you could market the shite out of it along the line you distinguish between your brands on the basis of 
other characteristics than the kind of price and prestige. It's mm. about, you know, yeah. whether this is a family car, whether we mostly make family cars, or whether we mostly make adventurous SUVs and hmm. off-roady things. The Peugeot Group has been wrestling with that for years because Peugeot and Citroen yeah. have always felt a bit overlapping because there was that time when they yes, blanded out Citroen, you know, the sort of Zanti Azara era, and they were actually quite nice cars to drive, but they were just sort of quite ordinary compared to the mad Citroens of the past. Yeah, yeah. Right. And yeah. that made them more like the Peugeots of the present. And yeah. there was sort of seemingly very little difference between the two. What did you get from a Citroen that you didn't get from a Peugeot and vice versa? Yeah. And the answer was... So, um, <laughs> which, of, which of these French brands would you prefer this week, madam? Yes. I don't really, I don't really care. <laughs> Good morning. I'd like some French car, please. Don't really care what it's on the front. Yeah, says, you know, about, just, just yeah. some of that. Just give Thanks. us 1,200 kilos of yeah. French car. <laughs> We've got to wrap the show because it's been long already. But another bit of news that broke this week, which I got particularly excited about which kind of crosses over between what we were talking about earlier Le Mans and what we're talking about now the FCA PSA merger is that Peugeot have announced that they're going to come into the hypercar class in the WEC and therefore Le Mans in two years' time? Uh, I think 2022 is that? Is that what is it? 2022? I, 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 that's the date I've got in my mind. I'm intrigued by this because with the PSA FCA merger, that means Peugeot are now under the same umbrella as Maserati, Alfa Romeo, Ferrari. No, we, not Ferrari. Are uh, Ferrari still part owned by Fiat? Not at all. No, they were floated really? on the stock exchange, so they're now owned by. I didn't know that. Piero Ferrari of the proper Ferrari family. Really? And a, the Fiat have a shareholding, but it's not right. controlled it's not stake in any way. So, ah. so no, PSA have not got their bets on Ferrari. I didn't know that. I knew that Ferrari was largely controlled by the family, but I thought Fiat still had enough involved there. So I was going to say, that's great, because Peugeot can borrow some Ferrari technology, can't I they? don't think Ferrari would go for that, <laughs> somehow. I'm quite excited to see what a Peugeot hypercar looks like. I'm, I'm mm. really looking forward to seeing that. Yeah. Like well, one of those concept cars they used to do years ago. You know, the Oxia and stuff like that. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Uh, Onyx. Onyx, yeah. yeah. They used to do some oh, really yeah. cool-looking concept yeah. cars. So just dust off one of those. Yeah, that would do it. Done. Easy. Maybe this is part of what I was talking about, reprofiling the brand, that they're going to force Peugeot up market to sort of the Audi level by racing at Le Mans as a hypercar as opposed to a sports prototype. That would do it, wouldn't it? Interesting. It's just a theory, one of my stupid theories. Right, you've been listening to Zog. Goodbye. To Sarah. Goodbye. To Richard. Goodbye. I'm Gareth, and we're going to leave you with an anthem. And because Lewis won his sixth world championship, here's Lewis's anthem because we would like Bottas to have won too. Sung in the Finnish language. See ya. Jumala pelasta armorlinen kuningetar elakun jalokuningatar Jumala pelasta kuningatar i
see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!